Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we discuss the state of U.S. tax policy and some ideas for how to overhaul the system to make it more equitable, efficient, and coherent. We also discuss some current tax structures and their practical impacts on the items we buy, the money we make, and who bears an unequal share of the tax burden. My guest is Annette Nellen, tax professor and director of the Graduate Tax Program at San Jose State University. Professor Nellen also writes a blog on tax policy called 21st Century Taxation, which you can find at 21stCenturyTaxation.com. This is part two of our conversation. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net. So our tax system is complex. It can be confusing. And it seems like every time a new Congress is seated these days, there are efforts to overhaul it. And that can potentially lead to even more confusion, people making mistakes. So it sounds as if lawmakers and policymakers and other experts really need to sit down and and do a full and thoughtful analysis of how to make our tax system work better for all Americans. Probably the closest we came in the recent years to analyzing it was early on in the Obama administration. Congress was looking at, let's put together a bipartisan commission to study things, but they didn't get the votes to get it done. So Obama says, well, I'll put it together. But then it didn't have the same effect. You couldn't mandate, hey, in Congress, you're going to have a hearing or whatever they come up with. It was chaired by Simpson and Bowles, who were uh, bipartisan, sometimes called the Simpson-Bowles Committee. But they did a whole bunch of analysis. One of the things that came out was, if we got rid of all those special deductions and credits and all, you could have a rate of like 6%, <laughs> you know, something really low. Now, of course, that's really not going to happen, but it was interesting that they you know, really got in. And so far as critique of these, this is bipartisan. I I encourage anybody, you can go pull out the second President Bush. He had a panel on federal tax reform and they studied many things. He said, study how we can improve the income tax, study how we can replace it with a consumption tax. And they analyzed a few things, well, many things, but they did conclude hey, you know that exclusion for when your employer subsidizes your health insurance? That's actually causing health insurance to cost more and medical treatment to cost more. It's it's a flawed system. And on the mortgage interest deduction, they said, this is, I'm adding words, this is is crazy. If you look at um, the effective tax rate on investing in a business, investing in housing, your own housing, the effective tax rate investing in your housing is like 0%. I think in investing in a business like at the time, 27% or something. So they raised a few issues. One, what would the economy look like if the tax law wasn't encouraging overinvestment in housing? And why are we subsidizing this, particularly when data has shown, and there's been reports by academics and think tanks, that the mortgage interest deduction primarily helps a higher income person buy a more expensive home? which means they didn't need it to buy the home. They could have bought a less expensive one. So it encourages them to buy a more expensive home. Home ownership rates in the US are the same as in Canada. It doesn't have all those provisions. So they were proposing, you know, let's maybe change it to a credit and let's have it tied to the regional cost of housing and reduce this thing. Plus the mortgage interest deduction is not only on your principal residence, you can also claim it on a vacation home that has a mortgage. Well, what's the point? Uh, of that. So it sounds as if current tax policy already favors those who can 
buy a house, have a job, et cetera. Prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, but this will come back because it was just pulled out for eight years. I'll come back in 2026 is also allowing a home equity debt up to 100,000. And that means if somebody has equity in their home and they want to buy a car and want to finance it, they'll borrow it through their house because then they can deduct it. If someone doesn't have equity in their home, and in some parts of the country, they don't have a lot of equity in their home. I mean, in California, you know, people have, oh, I bought my home two years ago. Yeah, I got equity. They would have to actually get a car loan. It's not deductible. So it's just really inequitable things in the tax law. But as to why the tax law was left with this, oh, you get a mortgage interest deduction on your principal residence and your second home, which I'm talking about vacation home. Why is that? And that's not in the proposal to pull it out. And this would be the best time to get rid of the mortgage interest deduction because right now, and then through 2025, less than 10% of people are claiming this because the standard deduction was higher. Mortgage interest deduction, today there's only about 11% of people itemizing prior to the uh, Trump uh, tax changes about 30% uh, had, had itemized. Well, you bring up a point, why is it that way? And and it's that way because generally people who are making the laws, people who are in the room in our Congress tend to be higher income and they tend to have real estate. And two homes. And two homes. So that's what they know. So that's what they're legislating toward. And the more we have, you know, tell me if I'm wrong in any of this, but, you know, the more we have a system in which the public's voice is minimized via campaign finance or gerrymandering or whatever, then the less the public's voice becomes relevant to the conversation. Am I going out on a limb here? I think a lot of it also comes down to, or maybe even more importantly, just the low understanding of our tax and budget system because we don't talk about it. Look at the education that goes on in eighth grade, 11th grade in California on, oh, civics, you got to learn how the government works. They will never in those classes, and I shouldn't say never, maybe there are some few teachers who do it, not get in discussion about, well, how is it all funded? Uh, let's look at these budgets. Let's look at these tax expenditure reports that all these government agencies uh, produce. If more people did that or had a unified budget, for example, something California did a few years ago was lawmakers decided we should have a sales tax exemption for infant diapers. And I think to the public, oh, yeah, that sounds good. You know, that's going to help people. The Legislative Analyst Office told them before they passed this and the governor signed it saying, this is not going to do what you think it's going to do. This is not helping low-income families. If you want to help them, put that money that we're going to lose from exempting the, the uh, diapers from uh, sales tax, put it into more child care for low-income. They, they didn't do it, so they passed this thing for two years. And they also put in, though, we'll study its effectiveness. A year later, without any study, they extend it one year. And then this year, they made it permanent and said, oh, we're not going to study it. This cost to California $70 million a year. Now, we're a big state. That's a small number. But that $70 million is going to help mostly high-income people because they'll spend more money on diapers. So they'll get the bigger savings. You probably don't even notice that there's no sales tax being charged on the diapers. And it's not helping you know, a low-income person. If they can't afford the diaper, it's not because of the extra 9 to 10% added on. It's the diaper itself. That actually surprises me because I'm supportive of reducing the consumption tax on necessities like diapers, tampons, et cetera, because I really thought that was helping people who need it. I've been talking about this topic for a long, long time about how we could, for example, improve our sales tax in California, um, that we need to really broaden the base and, and lower the rate. In doing research about the diaper one, 
I learned from a report done by National Diaper Bank that for some low-income individuals, they, they're working, they take their child to child care, and the child care says, we got to bring the diapers with you. They don't have the diapers. They say, sorry, you can't drop your child off today. And then they either have to take the day off, which means it's harder to afford the diapers, or they have to tell if they got an older child, guess what? You're not going to school today. You're going to watch the baby. You know, why would California put this permanent now $70 million cost? That's why not even helping the people, but they get away with it because if they say, oh yeah, we put a diaper exemption in place. The public doesn't unfortunately know the questions to ask. We need to be doing something more to make the information more accessible. Uh, something I'm proposing is it would be fairly easy given the technology that exists. Most people, 80, over 80% of people do their tax return using software, but why not have an additional form? I usually we're not in favor of more forms, but it would be a form saying, here's all the tax breaks you got. And if they hadn't been here, you would have paid this much more. And of course, if they weren't there, the rates would be lower. So it's not an accurate picture, but it would let people know that that had been done. I, I came across a study, I think it's by Professor in Cornell. Um, she did years ago where she was asking people if they got any government assistance. And many people would say no, but as she asked more questions, it turned out they were getting some kind of a tax break that they just didn't view as even uh, government assistance. So we you know, really just have a disconnect over um, how the whole system works. And we're not asking all the questions of, are these changes going to help move our country forward? Is it going to reflect the way we live and do business today and for the next couple of years? And um, will it follow principles of good tax policy? That's something I've really been trying to promote. I've been running this blog since uh, 2007, where I, I talk a lot about that and uh, try to do other writing as well. Talk about it. I appreciate you having me on the uh, the podcast. Um, and it's something I want to see if I can devote more time to in the next few years of how do you bring some of this into um, the, the, the school system? Because certainly part of civics should be, yeah, let's understand some of this. But I think if more of the information was more readily available. And gosh, having that schedule on your tax return, that'd be an eye opener to people. Well, it sounds like um, more point of contact information for the taxpayer, but also uh, education somewhere in our public schooling that would help students understand. And I think of this both as understanding how taxes work and why they're there, as and also part of how taxes how systems play into the budget system. Yeah. Define our, how we live and how we engage, which I think sometimes we don't see systems. Um, for example, I had someone on talking about the post office and they basically said, oh yeah, in the 19th century, the post office made journalism possible. <laughs> oh, you know, because, because it took, took the papers around. Oh. You know, they, oh, of course, you know, without the post office, you wouldn't be delivering papers. Like, you know, like the way the systems influence our society and tax is part of this budget system mm -hmm. and it's, and it's part of funding or not funding our systems and where we put the taxes are where we sort of have our priorities. But it feels as if, uh, and from what I'm hearing you say throughout this interview, that has been very piecemeal, right? That it's been, oh, we got to address this. Oh, wait, now we got to address that without really stopping 
And it seems like we're overdue to sort of stop, take a breath and really look at everything. Right. And, and certainly there have been times with economic downturn, gee, what can we do? Or COVID, you know, certainly like, okay, we need to get money out to people. What are different ways we can do that? And it's not time to go through, well, let's study it for a year. No, we got to get the money out to them right now. So the economy doesn't crash. And I, I'd say some of that certainly did happen with the uh, tax reform of 86, because there was a, these blueprints, three volumes. And one of the volumes on those blueprint, volume three, was, well, what if we did have a VAT in the United States? And a whole big study is even a, a sample form. Uh, but there was just really a lot of analysis. I say I have my students even go look at it because uh, one of their projects they do in the capstone courses, you come up with some proposal you're interested in, and you're going to do this uh, analysis on it. And they all find things in that 1984 report that helps them better understand their proposal. Yeah, absolutely. And so it seems like we we need to understand things better. And so I want to kind of just talk a little bit about the history. I mean, I was thinking around World War II because that's where my limited understanding comes from. But what's been the role of taxes, you know, throughout the history of the U.S.? I know the Boston Tea Party and I know World War II and the creation of the middle class. That's kind of what I understand. So talk to me a little bit about how we viewed taxes throughout history and how that maybe has shifted in the last 50 to 75 years. Yeah. And those were two big events hitting the, the tax world as well, because you know, the, uh, the Boston Tea Party was a revolt against taxes. And that did lead to how they wrote the Constitution. They put some prohibitions, which is why in the late 1800s, when they said, you know, we're going from an agricultural to an industrial society, maybe our tax system should change. And they wanted to have an income tax. The Supreme Court said, no, doesn't work, at least for individuals, uh, because your constitution is written very restrictive. So they had to have the 16th Amendment. And then by 1913, we have our modern income tax, which uh, back then the corporate rate was 1% and the uh, individual rate was graduated up to 6%. But most individuals would not have been subject to uh, income tax. So why the eagerness to get tax passed in 1913, we're obviously funding World War I. In, in World War II, early 1940s, some would describe we went from being just a tax that didn't affect most people, they're going to be a mass tax, more people subject to it. And things I've read about it, it was like, oh, patriot to pay your taxes. So, you know, this thing goes in the place. Rates were very high from the 40s to the uh, 50s, even as high as, you know, over, uh, well over 80%. Now, of course, I was only to the very, very high income folks. Based on court cases I've seen, I think a lot of people who were the high income, obviously, besides a few industrialists, uh, were actors, including Ronald Reagan. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, the rates, even in 1980, the top individual rate was at 70%. And he says he remembers paying that. So, But that was one of the things he wanted to get done was to lower the rate, but broaden the base, get rid of some of these um, deductions. Reagan lowered the rates to two-tier, 14% and 28%. And then a few years later, President Bush bumped the top rate to 31%. And then a few years later, Clinton uh, and the Congress, they don't do this alone, <laughs> um, got it to 36 and 39.6%, which is what they're talking about, you know, bringing this 39.6% bracket back, which the Taxes and Jobs Act is going to bring back in 2026 anyway. Wow. So the Taxes and Jobs Act from a couple of years ago, it sunsets or parts of it sunset, which I didn't know. Yeah, mostly individual cuts. Like for individuals, they doubled the child credit from 1000 to 2000 They lowered the rates. That all expires after uh, 2025. Wow, that's that's amazing. So this tax rate of 70%, it sounds like crazy amount of money. What was the practical 
impact of that? Because all I know or all I'm told is, well, those high rates helped create a more equitable system or the middle class. That's a thing that's been said that I don't understand. I think it's wrong to have that high of rate as to what the highest rate should be. You know, that's probably political. But I I think when you're getting above 50 percent thinking, oh, I'm going to work and half of it will never be seen. Yes, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Instead, we should be looking at, you know, what's an effective way to tax. Because also something that happens when you have all these special deductions and credits, and there's a lot of credits being proposed by Biden and uh, Democrats. Not that Republicans don't have their set of credits either, but it just adds a lot of complexity to the law because these special rules are meant to apply to some narrow group. And it's hard to define that. Okay, do we really need it? What if we just got rid of it and we're able to lower uh, the rate. So it's not only causing uh, some inequities, some uh, inefficiencies by like favoring one industry or type of taxpayer over another, it adds a lot of complexity. So you know, top rate, I think, shouldn't be below 50%. Um, and how low you can get it, yeah, part of it's going to depend on what kind of leakage we might have in the system, like letting these billions of dollars of gains of very high uh, income folks with have a lot of appreciated property, let that escape income taxation, that's a lot of leakage there. Um, If we got rid of that, got rid of some of these deductions and credits that we really don't need, but you've got to do that along with uh, lowering the rate. And yes, spending should be looked at. Where can we have better um, efficiencies? Are there things that maybe employers should be better uh, covering? perhaps. You bring up another point I wanted to touch on if you have time is um, is this idea of our perception. For example, here in California, there's a, a segment of our California population who thinks that businesses are overtaxed and that there's a lot of burden tax and fee wise and that the money is wasted. So so I think the key element there is this this perceived waste. So there's something to be said for the public wanting accountability. What are your thoughts on the idea of waste in the way taxes are spent and how to communicate with the public? Yeah, I think it comes comes down to, I think if they understood some of the spending in there, if they saw maybe some of the data, because yeah, California, yeah, we have high taxes, about 9, 9% almost on, on corporations. But we've also had some very favorable tax credits. I mean, there are some very large companies in California that had these credit carryovers that, you know, it's going to reduce their state tax for some time. Yeah, for individuals, yeah, the, we have very high rates here. And then some will say oh, it's going to cause some people to leave. Now, that's not necessarily true because, yes, I understand that uh, Elon Musk moved, but he still has operations here. So he's still generating income in California. He is still paying some California uh, taxes. I'm guessing his number one reason to leave may have been some other reason about, you know, following where his main uh, business activity is perhaps. But, um, you know, we should certainly look at that. And actually the high rates that are there now, the voters voted those then. At first they were put in by the lawmakers, but then they were extended by the voters. And I think if they understood, you know, could we maybe, you know, broaden the base, lower the rates? Are there ways we could add some fairness? You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about tax policy in the U.S. with tax policy expert Annette Nellen. And shouldn't just be looking at income tax. We need to look at our sales tax. Our sales tax, it's still a 1930s model. We just tax tangible personal property. We don't tax digital items, which is doesn't make any sense. It's a consumption tax. It should be taxing personal consumption. It should not be taxing 
business consumption and all states tax business consumption. It's a flaw in the system. Someone has to have the guts to fix it. A few years ago, two economics professors and I wrote a paper, uh, which was intended to be presented to the uh, lawmakers who project through um, UC Davis and Sac State. And we're looking at how, how could we improve the sales tax, just something different than what's been proposed and never has, is hard to enact. And we come up with a, a plan. I think any state that adopted this would be a big attraction to business, but it just takes that guts like, well, making a major change. And I'm going to say just really quickly what it is, because I think it just helped people to understand. Yeah, we get used to, oh, things only work one way. No, there are other ways you can do it. So we think of, oh, sales tax at the register or at, or your, wherever you're making your payment, you get charged the sales tax. Well, yeah, that's one way to do it, but you also could convert it to a formula where if you think very simply, you take your income and you do two main things with it. You spend it or you save it. So you could tax consumption through a formula. Income minus savings equals consumption. And if people can figure it out, their algebra teachers are, <laughs> oh, yes, yes, you can do the equation Move it to the side. Okay, so consumption equals income minus savings. And you would just do this. It would just be another schedule on your 540. Businesses would not pay the sales tax. They should not be paying it. That would be a big boon to business. They'd be like, oh, when I buy equipment or you know stuff, I don't have to pay sales tax on that. That would be make us very attractive to business. And you could then adjust this tax to say, oh, if your income's below 50,000, you don't do it at all. Because we're thinking, how can we alleviate the regressivity of the sales tax for very low income? Right at the register, you don't want to have yeah, here's my income card. I'm below 10,000. So charge me this or don't charge me anything. That doesn't work, but this would work very well, whatever that income level is. Yeah, the calculation would be a little bit complicated, but there'd be software and probably the, your bank and your brokerage account would say, oh, we'll help you do um, these calculations. And it could also be even a tiered rate structure. You could say, oh, you spent more than half a million dollars. Guess what? We're going to charge you a higher rate. You clearly have the money to, to do that, right? You only spent you know, more than a thousand dollars in the year, your consumption rate would be, you know, 5% or something, but also that would then broaden the base because it'd be all your consumption. Um, and then you could easily, and we, we suggested pull out vehicles because like when you buy a car, oh, I want to finance it. There's already systems set up when you register it, you would just be charged the sales tax. You could finance it when you do all that, but that would be, you know, kind of a major system. Um, when we present it to staff, like, oh yeah, that's, that's very interesting to think, are there better ways to do things? And with technology, the one we were proposing would have lower rates. It would be a great relief to very low income, uh, really lowering your tax liability and a great price system to business. It'd be great for the state. Hey, business, come on down. We don't have any sales tax you'll have to pay. And guess what? You don't even have to collect it because it wouldn't be done that way anymore. So that whole compliance thing would just be gone. People do it on their individual tax form if they're above a certain income level. Well, how would the loss of the business consumption tax affect the bottom line? That is a challenge because, I mean, right now our flawed system in all the states, uh, roughly 30% of the sales tax is coming from the flaw that the businesses shouldn't be charged. Because when the business pays the sales tax, they built into the price that they're charging and you got a tax and a tax. And so you'd have to have some way to um, adjust that. Plus, in, in California, you'd have to find a way that some portion of that's going to have to go to the local government, because right now they do collect a portion of the sales tax goes to local government, not to the state. 
but it's all all doable. It's the you know the the, the guts to make it happen. But you know, they could actually have some kind of a transition to to that system. But ideally, it'd probably be a lower rate because it would be a broader base. You know, you had the fifty thousand dollar trip around the world. But guess what? You're going to pay sales tax on that. Many of the things that we don't subject to sales tax, the high end consumption. Why not? Your personal trainer, no sales tax. You, you buy your own gym equipment, you got to pay sales tax on that. Um, the season tickets to the Sharks, no sales tax on that, but it's personal consumption. So it, it would pick up that high end. Um, and I think a lot of individuals would find maybe they're paying less. You give an example that sometimes we can be thinking differently on how, how things are done, but we just don't take the time to have these discussion. Certainly there are some hearings that'll go on um, like, oh, this is an informational hearing. Okay. Well, what are you going to do with all this information? At some point, let's, let's do something with it. Let's, let's let's (laughs) act on that. Yeah. (laughs) To kind of draw back to the beginning and sort of everything we've discussed, it sounds like we need the will to do this. We need the, somebody has to have the guts and the will to do this. And then we need to like, clearly discussions are being had. People are thinking about this. You're thinking about this. There's policy that can be shifted. We need to pull that all together and do it. And that's politically uh, dangerous right now, or politically scary, politically risky. Um, And you brought up the uh, idea earlier that instead of really having a frank conversation about some of these things, there's PR spin around it. You know, it's like, oh, let's pull this thing out. So there are attempts to spin and mislead rather than really grapple with and discuss. So this is where we are. And we've got a lot of problems to fix. And we've got and we've got a tax code that's that's getting a little bit more uh, shaky and and messy as we move forward. So given all of that, what should the public know and what can they do to help hold their leaders accountable so that maybe we can get started on this? I think it'd be great to write to them to let them know we'd like you to actually identify what the weaknesses are and work on those, not just a few band-aids. Um, and don't be giving out even more breaks that aren't needed if there's no reason. Just, I don't think we need all these energy credits on, on electric cars. People are buying them. So really take a careful look at, like any company do, we're going to do a SWOT analysis, you know, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and let's do an analysis and come up with a plan that way. You've got to get everybody working together. And that's the challenge. Um, I don't believe that the majority of the public wants to see all that fighting. It's unproductive. Um, and it leads to things where it helps produce misinformation, which isn't really helping anybody. So yeah, we hear this a lot, you know, hold these folks accountable. It's asking these questions when they're running for office, you know, tell me what you think is the greatest two weaknesses or something in our tax system. And what would you do to fix them without making other things worse. And can you, and can you share some of this data with us so we understand you know, where all the spending is, including the spending that's in the tax law? And, and can you tell us why, why it's there? Can you see, we can do this because when during the past year, we've had some pretty robust conversations around public safety and how our tax dollars are spent with regard to police stations and mental health services, et cetera, we are capable as a public of having these conversations. And, and, and I, I hope, I mean, I want to talk about this with you because there's so much there that we need to solve. Yeah, in March of 2020, there was two uh, COVID bills passed with tax revisions. They were widely bipartisan. 
And so I mean, it can happen. Um, I think, I mean, there's smart people on all, all sides that have, you know, the, these tax committees, these people study a lot. They've got very smart staff that have, you know, typically having some good tax expertise. They've got access to so many people who would, you know, send testimony and to help interpret data. Let's do it. Let's make a system that would really help our uh, country to uh, have a tax system that reflects the way we live and do business today and reflects principles of good tax policy. So it's very efficient on how it works and is understandable to the public, respected. Yeah. Yeah. And to see beyond ourselves. Uh, right. To, to, yeah, to see beyond uh, the needs of the people in the room to sort of the needs of, of everybody. Yeah. And everybody should look at, you know, well, what's the effect to me, but what's the effect to your community, your employer, even the effect to your state? These tax changes will affect your state finances as well. Thank you to my guest, Annette Nellen, tax professor and director of the graduate tax program at San Jose State University. Professor Nellen also writes a blog about tax policy, which you can find at 21stCenturyTaxation.com. This was part two of our conversation. You can hear part one at newsincontext.net. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing News in Context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.